Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God. It is a self-evident fact and requires just a few minutes' study only to see that whatever Jesus was doing, it was preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God. All of his teaching is a development of that central theme. The kingdom of God is the axis around which all of his instruction revolves. Jesus was the great preacher of the kingdom, and he urges his followers to take up that same message until the end of the age. You remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28? Jesus there gave the marching orders for the church until he returned to set up the kingdom. He urged them to teach to all the nations everything that he taught them and to baptize them as they came to an understanding of the gospel of the kingdom and the things concerning Jesus Christ. We find exactly that procedure being carried out in Acts 8 verse 12, a wonderfully simple early creedal statement. In that passage in Acts 8 and verse 12, we read that it was when they believed Philip as he was preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus, that they were ready to be baptized, both men and women. Getting hold of the idea of the kingdom was the first item on the agenda of early Christian evangelism and early Christian conversion. Now that idea went back to the preaching of Jesus himself. I must remind you in Hebrews 2 and verse 3 that the writer of that epistle traces the preaching of the gospel to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It was Jesus who first began to preach salvation, according to Hebrews 2 verse 3. That's because in the early verses of Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is said to be God's last word to the world. He is the ultimate messenger, the ultimate prophet. He's the pilot of all Christians for the kingdom of God. Follow me, he says, and I will lead you into the kingdom of God. But believe in my kingdom program and my kingdom message. That's the essence of his opening salvo his opening address to his audiences in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He commands repentance in view of the coming of the kingdom of God. And it's the gospel about the kingdom of God which is the subject of his discourse here. He says, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. And so you see repentance, turning around, doing a U-turn in our conduct and our thinking. Repentance is inextricably linked with belief in the kingdom of God. It isn't just repent and lead a good life. It is more specific than that. Repentance here is described as a wholehearted commitment to the good news. And what good news is involved here? Clearly the good news about the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Matthew 4 verse 17. Luke 4 verse 43. You'll notice that Jesus does not just invite people to accept him into their heart or to accept him even as Savior, although of course that is involved. He invites them quite specifically to repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God. Repentance here and conversion is linked with faith in the good news of the kingdom. And that's the foundation of Christianity as the Bible lays it out for us. And that kingdom theme runs like a golden thread throughout the preaching of Jesus and the apostles, right through to the end of the New Testament without interruption. There were never in the New Testament two forms of the gospel, one gospel for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. 
No, the gospel is one item, one oracle, one proclamation only, and it was initiated and modeled by Jesus himself, who was the first great preacher of the kingdom. It was copied then by the apostles who were sent out as Jesus' trained agents. It was reiterated by the apostles after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, so that in Acts 8.12 the kingdom gospel is still prominent, still the first item on the agenda of evangelism. In Acts 19.8 we find the same thing, a long-term discussion by Paul on the issue of the kingdom of God. For three months there he dialogued and discussed, argued and persuaded in regard to the kingdom. In Acts 20 verse 25, Paul defined for us the scope of his gospel preaching. It was called there a proclamation of the kingdom. No wonder that in Acts 28 verses 23 and 31, as a final reminder of what Paul had always preached as the sacred and precious Christian gospel, we have further and final references to the kingdom of God as being the principal theme of Paul's preaching. In Acts 28 verse 23, Paul convened a number of Jews to his own house, his hired house in Rome, and from dawn till dusk he dialogued and persuaded them in regard to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Finally, in Acts 28, verse 31, for two whole years, unhindered, without opposition and with complete freedom, Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. At the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, he urged his son in the faith, Timothy, the young convert, to preach the message. And in the very verse before that statement about preaching the message, Paul had just finished talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the crown which Paul expected to attain at the resurrection. At that day, God would grant him the reward of his faithful preaching, that's to say, a place in the kingdom of God. In Colossians 3.24, the kingdom and the inheritance is the reward for faithful service. The kingdom is the kingdom into which Christians enter at the second coming through the resurrection. Now, this very simple scheme is found in all the principal writers of the New Testament, James, for example, in James 1, verse 12, says exactly the same about the Christian destiny. Blessed is the man, says James, who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God has promised the crown of life. He's promised the kingdom. Paul said exactly the same thing in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. It was to be in the future that he would gain that reward of the crown of life. Again in James 2 and verse 5, we read that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. So God in one place has promised a crown of life. In a parallel passage, he's promised the kingdom to those who are faithful and they are now heirs of that kingdom. Paul spoke in Romans 8 of Christians being heirs with Jesus of the future kingdom of God. In Romans 4.13 we learn that the inheritance of the world was promised to Abraham. Putting all this information together, the scheme is exceedingly clear. To Abraham the gospel of the kingdom was originally preached. We find that stated by Paul in Galatians 3 in verse 8. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. To Abraham, of course, also the promise of the land was given. We find that in the famous 12th chapter of Genesis. 
the promise of progeny and seed and descendant, as well as the promise of the possession of land forever. There is essentially one covenant and one gospel message from the time of the promise made to Abraham onwards. Now, the law intervened for a temporary period, as we read in Galatians, but the promise made to Abraham is the foundation of Jesus' own gospel. In Romans chapter 15, Paul remarked that Jesus came as a minister to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. The Christian gospel of the kingdom is simply the confirmation of the great gift of land, covenanted and oath-bound, given by a solemn declaration by the God of heaven and earth to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and the people of God, Israel. The Christians in the New Testament must become grafted into Israel in order to share in the great promises made to Abraham and coming to fulfillment progressively in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3 and verse 19, we'll find that Jesus Christ was the seed to whom the promise of the inheritance was given. And if you belong to Christ, Paul said in Galatians 3.29, then you are Abraham's seed. You're reckoned as the same as the seed of Christ, part of the corporate seed of Messiah, his very body, and you then become heir of the kingdom of God, the inheritance of the kingdom of God, according to the promise. It's essential, if we want to understand Paul's writings, to know his basic vocabulary. Romans 4.13 is a critically important text. There he speaks of Abraham being heir of the world. But that inheritance of the world is promised not only to Abraham, but also to his seed. We find that stated clearly in Galatians 3 and verse 16. I read as follows. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, that's to say Christ. End of quotation. So Abraham's seed is firstly Christ, but I want you to notice that that seed is a corporate figure. It refers also to all those who are in Christ, because in Galatians 3.29 we read this, If you belong to Christ, if you're a Christian, then you become Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. And so the seed of Abraham is firstly Christ, but that seed is a corporate figure, just as the Son of Man and the saints are a corporate figure in Daniel 7. If you belong to Christ, then you are reckoned as that seed of Abraham, and you become heir of the world, according to the promise made to Abraham. Galatians 3 and verse 19 speaks of the seed being the heirs of the promise. The promise was made to the seed. That seed is Christ and all those who belong to Christ. The story of the gospel then revolves around Abraham and the gospel preached to him around Christ as being the promised descendant of Abraham and around the Christians who are incorporated into Christ by baptism and conversion and belief in the promises about the kingdom of God. Participation in Christ means participation in Christ's agenda and in God's great gospel about the kingdom of God. The promises made to Abraham coming to fulfillment, but not yet fully come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The denouement of God's great plan happens only when Christ returns to this earth to establish the kingdom of God. As we read in Daniel 2 verse 44, at that time, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. In Daniel 7.27, we learn 
that that kingdom is to be given to the saints of the Most High, and all nations and tongues and languages and peoples will serve and obey them, that's to say the saints, as incorporated in Christ, who is the chief saint, the Holy One. Jesus is the Christ, the head of the kingdom, the anointed one. He's what the Hebrew Bible calls the Mashiach, or promised anointed one, known in the Greek language as Christos, which equally means the anointed one. The anointed king of Israel is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the promised king of whom all the previous anointed kings of Israel were mere shadows and figures and types. Jesus is the one to whom the kingdom is given, to whom the inheritance was made. Galatians 3 verse 19. No wonder then that in Luke 22 verses 28 to 30, Jesus said this, Just as my Father has covenanted or promised a kingdom to me, so I covenant with you, speaking to the disciples there, that you may reign as kings in my kingdom and sit on twelve thrones to administer the tribes regathered in the land. The entire story of the Bible revolves around this theme of the kingdom of God, how God, using his chosen agent, the Messiah, is preparing to rule on the earth in the kingdom of God. Jesus will be here, and the world will know peace. Jesus is to be the first successful world governor. In him all the hopes of peace on earth reside. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God, also a tape of this program if you'd like to study these issues in greater detail. Meanwhile, join us again for our continuing investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.